You know, this is day 22. Remember, three Sundays ago, I said, in 22 days, we're going to talk about this, where will people be? In 22 days, they will be 22 days closer to something. If you've named one person, you and me and that one person, whoever it is, are 22 days closer to eternity, wherever we will be spending eternity. God has held off on his return. He has been patient with you and with me, waiting for us to help that one person, to help others into his kingdom. And more names are up on the one-person wall. That list of names that's up out there outside the offices, it's not too late. As long as that one person that you thought of is still breathing and you're still breathing, you got time. So I encourage you to put that up there. We have a team of people then who are going to take those names and regularly pray for them. They're going to be praying along with you. And so I hope that you'll put that name up there because won't it be great, wouldn't it be great, that there will be a wall space a year from now that has another list of names on it, a list of the people who in the past year have come into the kingdom of God because we've made the effort in part to reach to them. I know so far this morning I am talking to people who are followers of Jesus already. I'm always going to assume, though, that online and even here in person, there is at least someone who's not there yet. You're here for some reason, but it's not because you're already a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're curious. Maybe you're desperate. Maybe you're here to just be kind of a, a favor to somebody who invited you and they're a friend. I, it, I'm just glad that you're here. And everybody else is glad that you're here too. Amen? We're just glad that you're here. And maybe you're just that person who's a couple steps away from becoming a first-time follower of Jesus Christ. One of the things I think that will be at least clear to you, if that's you this morning, is that one of the main purposes of the church is to bring other people along. That's really largely what we're about in this journey to heaven, is bringing other people with us. We feel like it's a good place to be, a good place to be headed to, and we'd like you to join us. Our plan is to thrive in the future, in the near future. Remember what thrive stands for? Go ahead, say it with me. Tapping heaven's resources to ignite vital expansion. Thank you, both of you. That was good. <laughs> We're going to work on that. We're going to keep working on that. Well, that's necessarily going to include reaching to people, reaching people for Jesus. And that's what we've been talking about this month. We've talked about having a right heart, remember that? We've talked about the things that you have to know in order to get this done, and we have even talked about how to get off dead center and how to move forward with all that. Today, I want to do something different. I want to walk us through the book of Acts and see what was going on when the church first started. When it first took off, it's in this book, we call it Acts, so if you would, grab your Bibles, and we're going to be looking at a lot of different places in the book of Acts this morning. Acts is just the short version for the longer name for this book, which is Acts of the Apostles. We call it Acts. That's pretty easy to say. What did those first Christians do to reach people for God's kingdom? That's the question that I took into the book of Acts as I went through the whole thing again, just looking through it and asking, what were those first Christians doing to bring people along with them? 
And I think this morning is going to help put some feet to that desire to bring others along with us. It's really different. Uh, I encourage you to take notes this morning, too. Uh, they're going to be up on the screen off and on, and you can jot these things down. There's going to be a lot of them, but in, in the end, what I'd like you to have is a list with some ideas of, that you can put to use right away today. All right? Everybody ready to do this? All right, they're all two words long, so they'll be a little easier to remember. The first one is to pray together. We already practiced this last week. Paul wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 6, verse 18, that they should be praying that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, that I may declare it boldly. Paul wanted the church to pray for him so that he could bring others along. He wrote to the church in Colossae, chapter 4, verse 3, Pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Acts chapter 4, the church faced some pressure. And their response to the pressure was to gather together and guess what? Pray. And in the midst of that prayer, chapter 4, Verse 3, look at what they said. Right, verse 29, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. The church prayed together that they would bring others along. We prayed together about this just last week, remember? Asking the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. We're going to continue to do that. It's just one way that the church reached out. They asked for God's help in this. Pray together. That's Acts chapter 4. Here's another one. When you move on through the book, it's in chapter 8, and that is to ask questions. The Holy Spirit has just sent out Philip onto the Gaza Road. He is there at God's order. It's a desert road, and there's a man riding along in a chariot. He's reading a copy of the book of Isaiah. He likely has just gotten this copy as he visited Jerusalem. He's now on his way back home to Ethiopia. He is an official of the Queen of Ethiopia. Philip runs up to him sees that he is reading Isaiah, and what does Philip do? He asks him a question. Do you understand what you're reading? And boom, Philip's got an invitation. And in no time, he's up in the chariot with this man, sharing with him the good news about Jesus Christ, and in a very short while after learning about it, he too becomes a follower of Jesus. What a great story. That's in chapter, chapter 8. Now, I know a couple of people who are really good at asking questions. Here in our church family, a couple of people who do a great job of this. One of the best ways to let people know that you care about them, that you're genuinely interested in them, that you respect them, is to ask them questions about what do they think. Open-ended, honest questions. And I want to encourage you just... Think ahead on this. There are really just a few questions when if you would ask them at the right time to the right people, could open up a conversation that could save someone's soul. Questions like this. How do you decide what you believe is true? So where do you go for encouragement when you need it? What motivates you in life? What do you think the world needs most? 
What do you know about Jesus Christ? What do you know about the cross? Just ask some honest questions, and I think you may be surprised how some people will start sharing things that actually matter in their life just because you asked some questions. Acts chapter 7. Here's another one, that, and that's get uncomfortable. Doesn't sound like fun. Hang on. Acts chapter 7, Stephen has just been stoned to death. He became the very first person to die because of his faith in Jesus Christ. He's a martyr. And then, in the verse right after that, at the beginning of Acts chapter 8, we read these words. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Well, Philip was one of those. Philip was one of those who went on north to the area of Samaria and he preached to the people there who were his hated race. Philip didn't go because it was comfortable. It was an uncomfortable scene. Acts chapter 10. God gives Peter an order to share the gospel with people who weren't Jews. Wasn't comfortable. In fact, when he meets with them, listen to what he tells this group of non-Jews. Acts chapter 10, verse 28. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Get uncomfortable. Aren't you glad you came this morning? Can you imagine that a hundred years ago, if you were to tell someone one day people will be driving around in cars that have heaters in the seats and in the steering wheel, what do you suppose they would say to you? You're nuts. But the fact is, we pour a lot into being comfortable. So what do we do with uncomfortable? It may be that one of the issues we have in reaching out to people is it's not comfortable. Amen? Be honest with me. That's one of the problems. So what do we do with that discomfort that it could cause us? I have a suggestion. What we do is we put our comforts somewhere lower on the list where they belong. The thought of another person burning in hell should make us uncomfortable. Kind of like I'm trying to make you right now. God sent Peter and others into situations that were not comfortable to an extreme. May I humbly suggest that being comfortable needs to be less important to us. Get uncomfortable. There's one. Let's keep moving through Acts. Meet needs. Acts chapter 3. Peter and John heal a crippled beggar. Chapter 9, verse 32, Peter heals a paralyzed man named Aeneas. Chapter 9, verse 42, after Peter raises Tabitha from the dead, it says it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Chapter 14, verse 8, Paul and Barnabas heal a crippled man in Lystra, and then they preach to the crowd that gathers after a person is healed. Chapter 15, 
Now, I'm not suggesting that what we need to do is heal lots of people and raise people from the dead. I'm not sure that that's something we should focus on. But I do notice that when we help someone, like Carpenter's Place, people make a note of that. And some of them may be interested in why would someone do that? We have to be alert to people's needs that we can meet. Just like we heard from the video about Carpenter's Place. In Matthew 25, Jesus said that when we meet the practical needs of people, we are doing that to whom? Him. Inasmuch as you've done it to the least of these, my brothers, you have done it to me. So doing good to people is good. But doing good for people and then using that good to help them become part of God's kingdom, that's great. Do good things. Here's another one. Study culture. Study culture. Moving through Acts to the 17th chapter, Paul, in verse 25, is standing in Athens, Greece, the center of philosophy and thought in the first century. People are there who spend all their time, it says, just telling and hearing about something that's new. It's like the social media of its day. Hashtag Athens. There it is. And for days, Paul has been walking around Athens, looking, observing, studying. He's seeing things there. He is studying the culture, and now he has been given an audience on Mars Hill, the Areopagus, the philosophers of the day. So he starts by talking about all the idols that he observed in their city. And then he quotes from a couple of their writers, Epimenides of Crete and the poet Eratus. He showed that he was in touch with the way they were thinking and the things that they knew about. He didn't accept them. In fact, those things made his eyes sting. But Paul understood that to be effective, he had to understand those people. So what did he do? He studied their culture. You hear where this is going, don't you? Shouldn't we? If we really care about reaching the people of our culture, and we do, then we should be students of that culture. It doesn't mean that we adopt it, but it does mean that we know about it. Amen? What makes people tick? What's most important to them in Rockford, Illinois today? What are the things that they fear? Where are they likely to go for help? What are the trends that are impacting their lives? When we get a better idea of that, we will be more ready to speak to them in a way that they're going to listen to. So we need to learn how to study culture. Here's another one. Visit synagogues. When's the last time you did that? But I noticed this looking at the book of Acts. You, you, you have to work hard to miss it. And I'm just going to ask him to click through these verses there in 13.5 and 13.14, 14, 17.1, 18.4, on and on. Every time it talks about how Paul and his traveling companions go to the synagogue, wherever they're at. Now, why would they go into the synagogue all these times? Why all these trips there? Well, there were Jewish people in those synagogues who were there to learn from the Old Testament. They believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob already. 
They were looking for the appearance of God's Messiah that he had promised he would send to save them. They believed in these things. In other words, Paul was going there because he was taking what people already knew and believed in, and he was building on it. We could learn from that, couldn't we? Jews already believe most of the Bible. And that they expect God to send his Messiah to save us, they share that belief with us already. Do you realize that over 80% of the population of the United States says that there is a God of some form? Do you realize that most atheists believe already that somewhere in the past the universe had an event when it began? I already believe that too, don't you? Do you realize that every culture has built into that culture some sense that there are right things to do and wrong things to do? We believe that too. People already believe a lot of things that we can talk about and we can build on and we need to learn how to build that common ground and use it just like Paul did when he took the gospel to the Jews. All right? Here's another one. Yeah, there's a bunch, I told you. Set sail. Acts 13, 13 says this. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. You don't know Perga from Paphos any more than I do. All right? But here's the thing it says in there. They set sail. And as you go through the book of Acts and you watch him on the missionary journeys, Paul is traveling. He's traveling by ship. He's traveling on horseback. He is traveling by foot on land. He also wrote letters, and he sent them all over the place and asked them to be passed on from there. He invested himself into people, and he sent them all over the place too. And I get the sense that Paul wasn't just stuck with just one way of trying to reach people. Paul was using all the means he could, all the means he had available to get the gospel message out. In spite of all the world's problems, everything that the world is facing, I'll tell you what, I thank God for the times that we live in. Do you? For the place in which he has placed us. We have got amazing ways to reach people with the gospel, unlike any time before. Unlike any time in history before, there is a plan, there is a schedule, the end of which means every person, every, not person, but every language group in the world will have the Bible, or some portion of it, at least in their language, potentially in my lifetime. I'm thankful for the times that we live in. We have the ability to communicate the message to more people all over the world faster than ever. What do you think if Paul were alive today, do you suppose he'd be using the internet? Do you think Paul would be interested in YouTube and social media and streaming TV and video chats? I'll tell you what, if, if I understand what he did in the book of Acts, I think he would be all over that. This is the man who wrote in 1 Corinthians 9.22, I have become all things to all people so that by all means I might reach some. 
Right now, I'm, I'm not saying, well, you should, you should get involved in TED Talks and you should be the next person on stage doing a TED Talk or you should start a video blog or something like that. I'm just saying that you and I have so many ways to communicate to people today. <laughs> Ironically, I forgot my phone at home. It's actually been a good day that way. We have all these different ways to communicate. How much are you using those to reach one person with the good news of Jesus Christ? There's no shortage of ways to send it. You just have to figure out what is it, what's the one way that they're going to listen to? Figure it out. Figure it out and set sail. All right, here's another one. Hit curveballs. Hit curveballs, of course. Chapter 16 of Acts, verse 25 and following there, Paul and Silas, because they were preaching the gospel and because they helped somebody, are arrested and beaten and thrown into prison unjustly. They're sitting there in prison at midnight, bloodied and sore and treated wrongly, and they made a choice. They made the choice to take their circumstances and sing and pray so that everyone in the prison is listening to them, including the guard. God uses that choice. And as a result of that, the guard and his family hear the gospel message that night, and they become followers of Jesus Christ. What a great story. Later, when Paul is put into prison again on a longer-term arrangement, he writes a letter to the church in that city where he had been thrown in jail, in Philippians. And in the first chapter, he says to them, verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, being thrown in prison, has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And once again, sitting in a prison, Paul makes a choice. He could look at the guards, maybe dressed like Larry Cross, who were assigned to guard him hour after hour, and he could have griped at them, or he could look at them as a captive audience and share the gospel, and he did. The entire imperial guard knew about Paul. See, he'd been tossed some curveballs. Maybe you've noticed that life is going to pitch some curveballs at us. Part of that, I think, is because the enemy wants to intimidate us and make us give up. When the pitch ball that's a curveball comes at you, what do you do with it? You've got a decision to make. Zidon and Helen Nutt were missionaries in Chitamoyo Christian Mission, which they established in what was then Rhodesia, Africa, later became Zimbabwe. And while they were there, after 13 or so years of working, they reached a decision. Their daughter that was born there was born with special needs. Her name was Linda. Linda, it was possible, could be helped by coming back to the States and receiving some care here that she couldn't receive while they were in Zimbabwe. So they made the difficult decision to take what was becoming a growing ministry and move it, themselves at least, to the United States. 
Nobody knew how that setback would turn out, but what happened with that was it led to the growth and the development of Good News Productions International that we support on a regular basis, and that today is grown to the point where it's reaching millions and millions of people every year with the gospel. Looked like a curveball. They made a choice. Johnny Erickson Tata, you've probably heard about her story. Years ago, at the age of 17, she broke her neck in a diving accident. She instantly became a quadriplegic for the rest of her life. And that accident could have marked the end of her trying to accomplish anything or trying to do any kind of good, but Johnny made a decision and she decided to use what had happened to her and develop it into a ministry of encouragement to people with disabilities and others. Ministry that's gone on for decades. When Satan throws a curveball at you, make a decision and hit it. Don't let it take you down. It's not the end of what God is doing. It may be just the beginning of what God is doing. Hit the curveball. Here's another one. Shift gears. You like all these analogies? Shift gears. Chapter 18. Paul is in Corinth. And once again, guess where he goes? to the synagogue, to tell the Jews about Jesus. They oppose him at the synagogue, it says. And so Paul shifts gears. He goes next door to the house of a man who gives him a space to teach. And so he teaches there instead. And over time, it says, the leader of the synagogue next door becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. Paul didn't run off. He just shifted gears. He went on to Ephesus, and a similar thing happened there. He ended up leaving the synagogue, finding somewhere else to preach and teach. Rather than give up, he shifted gears. He didn't need to quit. He just needed to adjust. Chapter 19, verse 10. This continued for two years. So that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Why? Because Paul ran into a roadblock and shifted gears. All right, here's the audience participation part. Here's where you help out. <laughs> Show of hands this morning, how many of you know how to drive a stick shift, a standard transmission? Look, ooh, look at that. That's good. All right, good for you. How many of you own one and drive it? Yeah, about three. So I, I thought it might be harder, although I see that just about everybody knows how to drive one, it might be harder to talk about this because not very many people drive cars with standard transmissions these days. But the ability in driving a standard, the ability to know when to shift up or down is very important in order to be able to keep moving forward. If you're running the engine too hard, too fast, you're, you're, you're wasting gas, you're heating it up, you have a lack of power, if you're running it too slow and lugging it, you can damage it. Nothing is wrong with the engine, but the conditions under which you are trying to drive it require that you shift gears, right? COVID has taught us a lot. I think one of the lessons I learned from COVID over the past two and a half years is how necessary it is to be flexible to be able to shift gears when you have to. That's not new, by the way. We just looked at where Paul was doing it. In the very earliest days of the church, they needed it. 
And so we shouldn't be too surprised that we need to do it now. If one way is no longer working, it's not because the engine's got a problem, it's because the circumstances require it's time to shift gears. That's happened in my lifetime. Years ago, it was pretty well assumed that if you could get somebody to, to sit down with you and to look at what the Bible says, you can make a good case for a life change and they'd come alongside you in that. Well, that changed. Now when you sit down with somebody, if you can get them to sit down with you, the first thing you may have to do is just get them to accept that this book is not just a book. And you may have to talk about how the Bible came to be and, and why we regard it as more than just a book. That didn't used to be the case, but that became the case. You know what? Talking to people about truth, and if this book is truth, if you could convince them this is truth, okay, now that went away. Now you've got to convince people that there is such a thing as truth. This idea that there is an objective truth, now you've got to get that established before you can talk about this being a source of truth, before you can sit down with somebody and look at it together. That's changed now too. I'm noticing that to get somebody to agree that you will reason together and use words together is kind of going away. The way that we get to people with the truth, the way that we do this, we've got to keep shifting gears because the circumstances around us keep shifting. So shift gears. All right, how many were there on that list, by the way? I'll just tell you, nine. That's nine things. All from the book of the New Testament that's all about how the church got started and how it took off. And now there's this list of ways to use to reach your one person. And maybe you're looking at that and you're thinking about the one person and you're going, I'm still not sure about this. And you know what? I get it. I get it. We worry that we're going to do it wrong, don't we? Or we worry that they're going to ask us something that we can't answer or that we're going to get engaged in some kind of an argument that we can't win. A few years ago, I read a book by a guy who was very big into evangelism, and he pointed out that when we share about Jesus Christ, when we share about our faith, there really are only a few possible outcomes. I think we tend to think of all that could happen, and we get psyched out by the possibilities, but really, there aren't very many. What will happen if I tell someone about Jesus Christ? What will happen if I tell them they need life in Jesus, what will they say? What will they think? This writer suggested that what we need to do is go ahead and share our faith and understand as we do that that it creates, when we share our faith, it creates a win-win-win situation. Here's what he was talking about. Number one, if this happens, there's only a few outcomes, here's one that could happen. <clears throat> one is that you share your faith they accept it, and they win, and you win. What a great deal. Hey, have you ever considered how the thing that you're searching for in life could be your need for a real relationship with Jesus Christ? And that person listens, and they respond to the gospel, and they accept Jesus. You win a new friend in Christ. You have a new brother or sister in Christ, and that other person wins. And that could happen, and that does happen. In fact, most of the people sitting around you here this morning, that is what happened. 
in some form. Win-win. Here's another outcome that could happen. You could share your faith. That person will accept it later. They win. You win. Hey, have you ever thought about how your family really needs to be a part of a church family, especially your kids? And that person listens, but that person doesn't respond. And you might think, oh, that didn't go so well. You don't hear anything about it, but lo and behold, a year later, here's that man with his family in the church, and then they all become a part of the church, and they become followers of Jesus because somewhere in the past, you share Jesus with him, and you win a new friend in Christ again. You win a whole family because that other person is going to spend forever in heaven with you because you helped it become a winning situation. There's another possible outcome, and that is this one the one that you're afraid of, that you share about Jesus and they reject him. They reject the message. Hey, are you sure that after you die you're going to go to heaven? And that person looks at you and says, well, who cares? I don't even think there is a heaven. I never realized what a weak-minded person you were that you believe that stuff. And you might look at that happening and say to yourself, well, that's kind of a lose-lose situation, isn't it? Let me read to you from 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 14, what Peter says. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Let that soak in. Does he mean it? Is it true? If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are, what is it? Blessed. In other words, if you share your faith in Jesus Christ, even if the other person rejects that faith, you at least still win. Amen? Fact is, think about this, the only situation that truly is a lose-lose situation is the situation where you don't share your faith. That's the only time it's truly a losing situation. And so to create a winning situation, what do you do? Somehow you share your faith about Jesus Christ. It is a win-win-win deal that we create when we do that. And it's the only way that it can become that way. So, are you ready to use all means to reach all people so that by some means you might reach and win some? You ready to do that? To reach one? When we claim that hope lives here, when we put that up on the walls and the doors and we wear it on shirts and we say it out loud, when we're talking about hope living here, I'm speaking now to the people who are not yet following Jesus. It's not just some lofty goal. It's not some political promise that we're trying to offer to the world. It is a testimony to the fact that in Jesus Christ we have been given something that the world has never been able to give to us. 
And we're inviting you to come along and be a part of that. We have a sure future. We anticipate a promise that is waiting to be fulfilled, and so we say it without blinking. Hope lives here. Amen? Hope lives here. We want you to be part of that. We'd love for you to be included in that, and we want you to know today that you can. And like I said at the beginning, it's going to be very evident by the end of this that one of the major focuses of the church is to figure out how can we bring other people along. We hope that's you today. If you're listening online and you have an opportunity now to make a comment on Facebook, just type it in, tell us, hey, I'd like to hear from this church. Tell me about how to become a follower of Jesus. Or contact us at cccrockford.org connect. Or you can email to us or call the church office and leave a message now, which we can pick up then and respond to. We hope that we'll hear from you today. Maybe you're here and that's where you're at. You're thinking to yourself, I'm interested in becoming a follower of Jesus. What do I need to do? I'm glad you asked that. Uh, we would love for you to come forward this morning and become a Christian. When people in the book of Acts, the very first day of the church, asked the question, what do we do? The answer was repent, that is turn away from your old life, and let each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's where it all starts. From there, then there's this life of growing and developing in Jesus. It could begin right now this morning. Let's stand up together. We're going to pray together. If you're ready to become a follower this morning of Jesus, I'm going to invite you just to step forward while... We're singing a song together here in just a moment, or any time after that, I'll be up here. Come talk to me, please, about your relationship with Jesus and how that can begin today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this moment where now, having listened to your word, we make decisions about what we're going to do with it. We who have followed you some for many years, Lord, uh, look at how the church did it in the book of Acts, and I pray that we can take with us now uh, these tools, these ideas, these ways of doing things that will be effective for you. Father, we want to create a win-win-win situation where people who are lost uh, touches our hearts enough that we go to where it's uncomfortable and say things that need to be said out of love and out of the hope that they'll respond to your love and your grace. Somebody has done that for us, Lord. Now make us that somebody in another person's life. We've been talking to you about one person that each of us would lift up before you regularly and that we'll be watching to be able to share with. God, right now, uh, just as we stand here, we lift up those names to you and we pray that you will send out workers into your harvest field so that we can reach more and become part of your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.